So when I go through a study of prayer like this, I understand there's differences of opinion out there. But that doesn't mean that I embrace all these opinions or that all these opinions are right. So it's important not only that we understand the differences. If this was purely an academic exercise, that would all, that's all that would be necessary. You would write your paper on something. I would look to see if you've articulated your thoughts well, you've interacted with mine well, and you disagree, that's fine. But this isn't an academic institution. This is a congregation. So in a congregation, we now have to move from mere intellectual understanding to convictions regarding that, that intellectual understanding. So now we have to move to another realm, and that is, this is what I believe, not only what I understand. So I understand what you're teaching about prayer, but the big question is, is that what I believe about it as well? Because when people come in and we pray with them, we want to be praying with them in a manner that reflects what Beth Ariel believes. And that's why this is, is critical. And I would not want anyone to be hypocritical. You know, we put on airs, but I really don't believe that. You know? And uh, so we sort of have our feet in one world while at the same time the other world and people get confused by that. <clears throat> so, much of what I've said thus far, many might agree, but in some aspects of things I've shared, and we're going to get a little more controversial, are things that we don't believe, that others may. And that's where convictions are important in a congregation setting, not in an academic setting. Does that make sense? You know? So, and by the way, I love academics, as you can tell. I love thinking about these kinds of things. And I love reflecting on differences of ideas and differences of opinion. It's interesting being on this jury. I really enjoy, although today was really tense. I mean, my stomach was like, as I'm hearing these testimonies, it, uh, I was getting really nervous, you know because I can see on the person's face as he's telling his story how emotionally churned he was by this and the impact this can have from one person to the other. And I'm thinking, I don't know if I want to be here. It's like watching a movie, you know, a suspense movie. And it's almost like, I don't know if I can take much more of this. That's sort of what was happening. But this was real life drama right in front of my eyes. You know? But I enjoy listening and I'm, I'm writing down different notes, trying to keep record to make sure I'm really hearing what is being said so I can make a sound judgment as best I can, you know, regarding what's true and what's false. Because the stakes are so high. I don't know what the punishment might be if the person's guilty. You know, certainly if the person's innocent, um, then they're free as a bird, right? So the ramifications are dramatic for them. I have to take this process very seriously. Well, in a similar way, when people visit or people are in need here, we have to take how we pray very seriously. This is serious business. And we need to be convinced in our heart that this is what is. You know? So anyway, that's sort of like a preface to uh, where we're headed and uh, where we're moving to. But let's pray. 
and we'll finish up what we have, and then we'll jump into some uh, controversial things uh, and uh, finish up, and then hopefully we can launch our prayer team once again. So, Father, we thank you for this evening. We are grateful for the time we have together uh, to study your word about prayer, to reflect on it, and, uh, and how we might do it better and more effectively and more meaningfully, um, that we as a congregation would be a congregation where our facility, our house is indeed a house of prayer. So, Father, guide and direct us, we pray, for we ask in Messiah's name. Back. Okay, we're on the uh, final summary. I think it's uh, Roman numeral 10. And uh, these are some of the things that we have said. Uh, now you need to click on, on that because it's not responding. There you go. Okay. So, first of all, we said earlier, prayer is speech addressed by, and the treble is still a little hot. Uh, prayer is speech addressed by individuals uh, to God. And I think all believers everywhere that find prayer to be significant, important, and essential would agree with that. It is speech addressed to God. Now, again, um, I'm not just, uh, I'm not ignoring the fact that there's such a thing as silent prayer or that uh, prayer uh, cannot be uh, simply um, uh, motions, you know, as we as we call out before God. But prayer, as we've been talking about, is that which involves verbalization and involves speech. And we said that prayer ultimately is to be made to God alone. Uh, there may be those that pray to quote-unquote saints, but individuals who are not God cannot hear us for a very simple reason. We are finite. And so, just like I can't hear you unless you scream, you know, down the end of the, of the road, uh, I'm certainly not going to hear you if I'm dead and I'm, my spirit is up in heaven. You know, I mean, then you got to really yell. Um, so I'm, I'm not able to hear your prayers, um, but God is. And thus, God alone is the one to whom we are to be addressing our prayers. And so Scripture says we're to essentially, though not exclusively, address our prayers to the Father in the name on the basis of the authority of the Son, what he, who He is and what He has accomplished, and in the power and motivation and enablement by the Spirit of God. Prayer is the privilege of the believer. That's not to say unbelievers can't pray. Obviously, each one of us in this room, at one time, we were unbelievers. We prayed, Lord, forgive me of my sin, come into my life, and he did. So he actually he heard that. And there isn't anything God does not hear. But on another level, prayer is a privilege that we, as the redeemed of the Lord, who have been restored and reconciled to God and have a right relationship with him, have a unique opportunity to speak with God on a level those who are not redeemed, reconciled, um, do not have. It's not unlike the fact that we are all children of God. But John makes it clear that those who have believed on his name, he has given us the authority to be called children of God. So there's a level of which we're all children of God and by virtue of the fact that we're all created in the image of God. But then there's a unique aspect of those who are the redeemed of the Lord, who are children of God in a manner 
in which the rest of humanity is not. And similarly, prayer is like that. Prayer by God's children to their father is very unique and distinct from conversations that individuals may express toward God who are not yet his children. We can cry out, Abba, Father. Unbelievers cannot. They can say the word, Abba, Father. I understand that. But it does not have the same meaning, significance, or reality that it has uh, for us. That being said, prayer then is an act of reverence in which we acknowledge the majesty and the holiness of God. And therefore, qualities like, and we've said this, but qualities like sincerity, earnestness, submission to the will of God, faith in what God has promised, obedience to his commands are connected to this discipline and this exercise. We said that God is sovereign and therefore his promise to answer prayer is always qualified by the revelation he has already given to us of his will as revealed in his word. So he is sovereign. He's not going to do anything that is contrary to his will as revealed in his word. And he also has a plan that hasn't unfolded yet for each and every one of us. And while we may pray and think something would be a good thing, and it may very well be a quote-unquote good thing, it may not be God's planned thing for us. And therefore, the sovereignty of God always takes precedent, and prayer, by its very nature, is the recognition of the sovereignty of God. For prayer is not our attempt to be God and to tell God how he should do things. Prayer is our attempt to express our desires, that's certainly permissible, and to express our fears, express our doubts, express our longings, as well as to express our praise, our gratitude, and our rejoicing in God as God. So prayer is not an attempt to convince God he really should listen to us. It's really our expression of our willingness to listen to him. And that he always has the final word. And whatever he does, it must be right and best for us ultimately. And maybe in one sense that's easier to say than to encounter many times. Because while for all of us here, our lives are pretty stable. There are individuals who are in chronic need all the time. People with uh, chronic illnesses that they cannot shirk. You know, people with physical, emotional, mental limitations that um, they're just not going to go away. Those people have a really hard time. And as I've talked to some and ministered to some, you know, you can say all the right things that Scripture says, but ultimately that individual and God have to sort of deal with those things. Because um, in one sense, we're sort of stand outside those kinds of experiences 
And uh, we have to be very humble and not judgmental uh, regarding uh, a person's weakness or a person's hurt or challenge that they are that they are faced with. But there are some people whose lives we took a look at, uh, we would say, how in the world do they make it you know, from one step to the other, uh, from one day to the other? There are people in China who are just living in utter poverty. You know, People in Africa who love the Lord, who are living under tin roofs. Um, and you wonder how do they do it? Why uh, are they faced with that kind of uh, scenario? Those are things we can't always answer. And uh, but yet God has a plan for them. Uh, and we have to trust in God's sovereignty as individuals come before Him with whatever their concerns might be, and whatever their challenges are. Um, Ultimately, the efficacy, the effectiveness of prayer does not rest in itself as though it were a magical power. The effects of right prayer are produced by the response of God himself. So, Mitch, we lost our... So, the efficacy of prayer... does not rest in itself as though it were a magical power. And when we conclude our prayers in the name of Messiah, uh, that doesn't make the prayer more powerful, more significant, more efficacious, more workable, you know. It doesn't convince God more whether we say it loud or soft or long or short. It's only in a statement indicating that our prayer is on the basis of God's grace shared with us through uh, Messiah. Um, Roman number 11. I think this may be the last section on your hand. In defense of prayer. First of all, um, there's the idea of the necessity of prayer. Let me just say three things. I don't think they're on here. Okay. So first of all, with respect to the necessity of prayer, here's the question arises. If God is infinitely wise and benevolent, if it is true that your Father knows what you need before you ask, which is what Yeshua says in Matthew chapter 6, if he is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, that's found in Ephesians 3.20, then what good does it do to pray? You know, that's the uh, that's the question. Um, in defense of prayer, talking about is prayer necessary? We all would say yes. Now, based on Matthew six eight, God is infinitely wise and kind-hearted and compassionate. If it is true, as Yeshua says, your Father knows what you need before you ask. Matthew chapter six. And according to Paul, he is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think. Then what good does it do to pray? He already knows what we need before we ask. And he does uh, abundantly more than all we can ask or think. And so I think what prayer then um, is about 
is it helps us connect with God regarding what God is already doing. So, yes, we make requests and we speak with God, but he already knows before we ask what we need, and he's able to do far more abundantly than what we would even ask. And so why do we pray? Well, we pray because, number one, we're commanded to pray. Yeshua teaches us. This is how you are to pray. So he's telling us, you are to pray. And his model for praying, his instruction for praying is found in Matthew 6. And he prefaces that instruction by telling us that before you begin to even pray this prayer, your father knows what you need before you can even ask. But then he doesn't turn around and say, but don't pray then. He says, so in light of the fact that he knows what you need before you ask, ask. Because he's desirous of providing it for you. And by asking, by speaking with him, we connect ourselves with him in a relationship of activity in which God interacts with us and connects uh, to us. The second thing is scripture nowhere, nowhere deals directly with this question. It doesn't explain why God, who knows what his people need and is willing to give it to them, commands them to pray for these things. So it is interesting that the command to pray is found side by side with this statement that God already knows. Matthew chapter 6, verses 8 to 13. And then, of course, in Matthew chapter 6, verses, uh, chapter 6, verse 32 and 33, and then in chapter 7, verses 7 and 8. So Matthew chapter 6, verses 8 to 13, and then in chapter 6, verses 32 to 33, and then in Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 and 8. And then there's a third thing to keep in mind. Uh, Matthew 7, verses 7 and 8. So there's a third thing to keep in mind. Not only does God know what we need before we ask, and not only does he, can he do far more abundantly than what we would ask, and though it is true that nowhere in the Bible does the Scripture explain this sort of dichotomy, this sort of paradox, or what some might call an antinomy, that which seems contrary to law or against law, um, but the scripture nowhere explains this, and yet it does command us to pray. And both of these points are laid out side by side. But keep this in mind with those ideas, and that is the ability to pray comes from God himself. Our ability to call out to God is something God stirs in us as well. So prayer is not the complement of God's activity, but the means by which God's purposes are carried out. So, and this you've heard very often, God ordains the means as well as the ends. And prayer is one of the means to the ends that he has. So we pray because God has a goal. And part of the goal or the plan that God has is involved or involves our praying as well.
And so what are these uh, benefits to prayer? The, it's not, yeah, I think you need to, there we go, whoops, sorry. The benefits of prayer. So let me uh, list for you a couple and you can, you can write these down. There's six that I have here. No, I just gave you the high points, the necessity of prayer. And so my points under the necessity of prayer is, number one, uh, it's needful for us to pray, despite the fact that, number one, God knows our needs before we ask and can do abundantly beyond anything we might ask or think. So we're still expected to pray. Secondly, the dilemma of God knowing and being able to do more than we ask or think and the command to pray are laid out side by side. It's not unlike God's uh, unfolding of his plans and our involvement with them. So in Philippians, he says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That's what we do. Why? Because it's God who is at work within you. You know, so it's both ends. You know, we're to work at our salvation, and yet it's because God is at work in that salvation already within us. So it's, it's a, <clears throat> you know, there's really no way to unfold that except to say that there is a interaction. And that's why <clears throat> I've said before, this whole notion of a relationship with God is sort of a mimicking of the triunity. While the members of the triunity are distinct, yet they're one. And they are interactive with each other, and yet their interactions are distinctive. And so similarly, when we come to know him, we become one with him. We are in Messiah. That's Paul's unique phrase. And being in Messiah sort of partners us with the Lord, with God. And so he's at work within us, and we're to work out what he is at work within us doing. So it's a both end. And I remember years and years ago when I heard a uh, <clears throat> some pastor, preacher, preaching on uh, man's humanities, uh, free will, and God's predestinative sovereignty. And he said, it's sort of like train tracks. You know, in this life, you stand on the train tracks and you see they're two separate tracks. But as you look into the distance, they sort of come together in this kind of perspective. And so one day when we're in heaven, we'll see how the two aspects actually come together in God's divine plan and purpose. But here now, we it's hard for us to see it. We have to compartmentalize everything because we can't see it all in one, one full swoop or one picture. So that was one illustration that I remember from years and years ago that was always helpful for me. It's not unlike in some, some churches or congregations. Um, you, uh, how do they have it? Uh, maybe not in some churches, but they say um, on the one side of the door, it says, whosoever will, 
And then when you walk through the door, it says on the other side, those who have been called, you know, before the foundations of the world. You know, it's just, uh, there are just certain aspects of God's truth that we cannot fully uh, comprehend or fully scrutinize. Prayer is one of those things. God is sovereign, yet we're called to pray. God is going to fulfill his will, yet we are um, invited to let him know our needs, even though he knows them, <laughs> you know, and even before we ask. But that's the whole point. He knows your needs before you ask. So he's expecting us to ask, knowing he already knows, but ask. <laughs> you know? And Yeshua goes on to say that, Matthew 7. Ask, seek, knock. Right? And uh, so that's part of the dilemma we live with as finite creations of God who are created in his image. So what are the benefits of prayer? Here are six. Number one, through prayer, this isn't on the board, but through prayer, we will grow in our love for God. I was speaking, uh, well, oftentimes I said to individuals, although I've fallen into the same trap, you know, we can go through life and we have moments of, uh, of disheartening experiences, frustrations, fears, anxieties, depression, uh, conflict. And our first instinct is, I'm not going to service. You know, that's like our first instinct. I just don't feel up to it. I don't want anyone to see me. I don't feel like God is pleased with me. Well, um, the first thing we ought to do when we feel that way is to run to God because he's the one that will accept us just as we are. He won't leave us just as we are. He'll change us. But we run from, you know, it's like in the garden. We sin, Adam and Eve sin, and the first thing they do is they hide. Well, that's what we're doing. You know, when we don't come to service, we may excuse it. I mean, Adam and Eve, they excused it well. You know, uh, where are you? And, um, and he says, you know, I, we ate this thing, and I was afraid, and I'm naked. I don't want you to see who I am. You know, well, that's what we're saying. We don't want anyone to see us for who we are. There's a certain reality to that. You know, we shouldn't just bare our souls before everyone and anyone about everything and anything. You know, that would be utter foolishness. But before God, we can. We can go away into our closet and we can confess everything that comes to our minds. And God's going to say, I forgive you, my son or my daughter. I love you. That's why I said my son. You don't think I know about all that? I do. And I love you despite that. And I'm going to change you and make you something new. In light of all of that, you're still going to be you. But that weight is what I want to remove from you. And so I try to encourage people that the best thing to do is to come into the body. Yes, it's going to be a hard moment. You know, it's like your soul's being ripped out. But when God is brought into the picture and you close your eyes and you're ready to sing to his glory and he's ready to minister to your heart and there are other believers around you who love you despite what you may have done or who you are or what's going on in your life, then you know God is at work. Now, there'll always be those who will fail us because we fail each other all the time. We fail ourselves. That's going to happen. 
But it's also going to happen that there's going to be that one who's going to, or two, or maybe more, who are going to be able to identify with you and say, hey, man, I love you. Let's pray to God together, and let's just lift up our souls to him. We grow in our love for God when we pray about all of these things. We also, uh, secondly, in through prayer, our desires become purified and holy. Change really happens. One of my close, closest, um, he's going to be with the Lord, but the fellow that taught me how to sail, one of the closest men in my life. In the 18 years I was in Maryland, and I love this man like I would love anyone. Um, he was that impactful on me as a person. Uh, so much so that when he passed away, uh, his wife said to me, anything you want of his, uh, you can take. You know, and Because we were inseparable. He was about 20 years older than me, but we were always inseparable. And I remember he said uh, when he was teaching me to sail, it was like almost every day we'd go out for a couple of hours, you know, on a, a, during a stretch. And then other times we'd be gone for all day, you know, and then come back. And it was just such a joy, such a joy, you know. Um, so when he passed away and his wife said, hey, Bill said, whatever you want, you know. So I picked out a couple of things. They're on my, in my office. They're right there behind my, the things I could put there. They're right behind my desk. And many a time. You know, I'll be studying or whatever, and I'll just be thinking about, you know, some scriptural thing. And, of course, I've talked with Bill much, much, much about life and about biblical things. And I'll just swivel my chair over, look at the stuff that I have, you know. Um, he was a really incredible individual. And he, he was just, uh, you know, he was like a renaissance guy. He made everything that he used. He filed tools, you know. Uh, if he needed a tool, he'd make it, file a thing, and it would be used for a specific, a specific job that he had. Um, and so one of the things that I have is a, a pair of uh, a glass frames, no lenses in them, but just the frames. And then attached to it, he was a welder as well. This was a man who retired as a captain in the uh, Navy. He was a public health officer. He worked in D.C. with C. Everett Coop in the Surgeon General's office. So he was a man of great stature. He introduced me to some really interesting people, people that worked on the Hubble telescope. He introduced me to lieutenant, uh, lieutenant colonels who were, um, this fellow was a, um, a pilot during Vietnam and flew reconnaissance missions over North Vietnam, you know, against public policy and, you know, it's like secret missions and all that kind of thing. And what was known as the uh, R, reconnaissance, the NRO, the National Reconnaissance Organization. And up until like the 80s or 90s, there, no one knew their office. They didn't have any sign on it. It was outside by the Pentagon, you know, in, in D.C. And he was like one of the main players. This guy, interestingly enough, good friend of Bill's, was an Apollo astronaut. And uh, so the Apollo 13, you know, when they got stuck up in, in space and they, you saw it with Tom Hanks and they had to somehow figure out a way to get back. Well, you see the movie and there are, there's a guy in a simulator. Well, they actually had two simulators. Right. 
and my friend Bill, Bill's friend was one of the astronauts in the other simulator that was trying to figure out how to get these guys down. He was one of the simulator astronauts. So these were like, you know, amazing individuals. And I was just 38 years old, you know, and, you know, I was like a peace snake from the 60s. And, and I mean, all these guys, another guy who I was still in contact with, who was a friend of his, was a captain in the United States Coast Guard. And he was the commander of the largest Coast Guard cutter in the, in the Coast Guard, right out of here in San Diego. It makes its run up from San Diego to Kodiak, Alaska. The uh, USS, or the CSS, what, the Coast Guard, CGSS, whatever, uh, Chase. It's the largest Coast Guard uh, ship. Well, this guy, during the Reagan administration, remember when we invaded Grenada? Well, this guy led the flotilla to invade this thing. I conducted his, um, his wedding ceremony. And they had all the guys with the swords, you know, as he and his bride would walk out. It was a real pomp and circumstances. And then when he formally retired, he invited me to come to give the invocation and prayer and so on. And I'm there with all these dignitaries, you know, at the Pentagon as he's being honored for his service. I had no idea what these guys were like. And Bill introduced me to all these men. And I remember saying to him, Bill, why did you do that? You know, why did you introduce me to Chuck and to Laird and this guy that worked on the Hubble? And he goes, hey, because, you know, you're, you're my friend. You're my brother in the Lord. You mean everything to me. I want you to know my friends. And I, I thought, I can't relate to these guys. You know, they're so highfalutin. Their minds are like way out, you know, in another universe. But um, Bill was an interesting guy because before he was a believer, every other word out of his mouth was a four-letter word, you know. And he was always disturbed by that. But when, uh, and I remember once he was going into surgery or something like that, and uh, he asked me to pray for him that he wouldn't say anything, you know, that might come out because he's now under anesthetic. And evidently, I don't know if he did or didn't. But when we pray, our desires become purified and holy. You know, our lives are changed. And we look back and we say, I can't believe I spoke like that or I thought like that or I acted like that. You know, God has just changed me and made me different. I'm not saying we have to become prudes and we can't be ourselves. But somehow God purifies and makes holy, you know, who we are. And it comes through prayer. Other things too, but certainly through prayer. Thirdly, as we pray, we grow in our sense of gratitude. We get a greater sense of, hey, we're all in this thing together. And it's God's grace that has enabled us to make it through another day. And whatever we possess, large or small, it's ultimately to the, due to the grace of God. And he enabled us uh, to be who we are, to accomplish whatever we've been able to accomplish, whether it's big on our scale or others or small on our scale. We grow in a sense of gratitude for who we are and what we've been able to do. Fourthly, so what have we said so far? We said through prayer we can grow in our love for God. Our desires become purified and holy. We grow in our sense of gratitude. And then fourthly, we gain a greater appreciation for the kindness, compassion, and mercy of God. 
we can gain a greater appreciation for the kindness, compassion, and mercy of God. So the more we pray, the more we are enamored by who God is. His compassion, kindness. It's all right. Of his of God's kindness, compassion, and mercy. Prayer will solidify that. The reading of his word does it too. But prayer, as God brings his word to bear, and you can read God's word prayerfully, you know, you combine these things. Fifth, through prayer we can receive greater delight in the blessings of God. We, can, we will gain greater delight the blessings of God. And, uh, I know, sorry. Maybe I was pressed for time when I got to this particular slide. Of God. And last, one last point. You ready? Okay. We grow in greater confidence. This is the next one. Number six. <laughs> no, it's okay. I'm just, you know, we're sort of calming down. Uh, okay. We grow in greater confidence in the promises of God. So we've talked about growing in the love of God. We talked about our desires becoming purified and made holy. We talked about growing in a sense of gratitude. We've talked about growing in appreciation for the kindness, compassion, and mercy of God. We spoke, spoke about growing in a sense of delight in the blessings of God. And we grow in terms of our confidence in the promises of God. And when we grow, in confidence in the promises of God, we grow in our ability to trust God. And the more we trust God, the greater and deeper our faith in Him. For that's what faith is. It is trust. So one of the keys to growing in our faith, you know, help I believe, help my unbelief, is prayer. Is simply getting apart with God. And one of the things about prayer is you can't really rush prayer. And this is where my problem is. I run helter-skelter, you know. Um, I, it's just my problem, you know. <laughs> just keep moving. And prayer takes a moment of deflating, you know. There are just some people that are wound up, and if they're not on or busy or moving or engaged, um, they get antsy. But, you know, you start small. If you're like that, you start where you're at. 
and you get away from things to the best of your ability with yourself and God. Maybe your Bible. And read your Bible prayerfully, and as you think of as a passage as being read, maybe you can close the Bible and you could pray about that passage as it might appear to relate to you. And that's a way to start. The real key, I think, is routine. You know, some people don't like routines. That's me. Uh, because I feel routines sort of constrain me. You know, I've got to stay within a certain, you know, confine. And I'm very free-spirited, you know. And so, but routines help keep us disciplined. So there's trade-offs. You know, the more routine you have, the more strident you can become. So there's a balance, and that's a key word for just about everything about life. When it's all something, then something else, then it becomes destructive. So if it's all about routine, we can become legalistic and think that we're communing with God when we're not. We're just obeying a routine. On the other hand, if you have no routine, you can find yourself not doing anything that one perhaps ought to be doing. So it's a tender balance between maintaining something regularly and keeping it flexible enough that it doesn't become God to us. Remember, prayer is not God. God is God. The Bible is not God. God is God. These are means to him. Prayer is a means to connect to him. Prayer, uh, the Bible is a means of understanding his will and his ways. And so we don't want to become worshipers of prayer or worshipers of any discipline, Bible reading. We want to be worshipers of God. And that requires discipline, routine, but not to the degree which it's a constraint and an impediment to that. Now, let me just read to you one last thing. Uh, this is just a, a statement that I had read. When individuals by faith apprehend God as personal, active, powerful, benevolent, when we see the world as created by him and under his sovereign control, when we embrace both the promises and commands of God concerning prayer as revealed in the word, then prayer in all its aspects will be most meaningful and effective. What a great statement. Huh? When individuals by faith apprehend God as personal, active, powerful, and benevolent. And when we see the world, so when we see God for who he is, and when we see the world as under his sovereign control, and when we embrace the promises and commands of God concerning prayer, as those commands and promises are revealed in his word, then prayer in every way will be most meaningful and effective. So one last time. 
When we understand who God is, when we realize the world is under his control, when we embrace his promises and commands regarding prayer, then our praying will be most meaningful and effective. So it starts with our understanding of God. It connects with the fact that he's working in the world. And we are responding to prayer with regard to its promises and commands as the word reveals it to us. When we put those three together, God, the world under his control, prayer as he has commanded it and through which he makes his promises concerning then prayer in light of those three things will be most meaningful and effective. So, uh, it's quarter to nine. Where we're going to go next week are theological issues related to prayer. And here's where we'll get into some of the controversial things, but I'll have a handout for you, um, and we'll, uh, we'll pursue that. And I think, I'm hoping we'll be done within the next couple of weeks or so. I really didn't think it would go this long. But this has been good, no? And uh, I hope it's been beneficial uh, for all of you. So we have 10 minutes. Why don't we spend, uh, and you can cut this now. Uh, well, let me close in prayer. And then we'll have about 10 minutes. And if there are any particular prayer requests or whatever, maybe we could pray for one another. Okay? So, Father, we thank you for uh, this evening the joy of learning from your word and understanding it better. So we thank you for the privilege of prayer. Help us to pray more effectively. Help us to pray more regularly. Help us, Father, uh, to come before you in worship and in adoration as we ought. Forgive us where we fail in this. But may you <clears throat> enable us, Father, uh, to do better in the future. Help our unbelief in this matter. And may we be moved to turn our attention to you through prayer. For we pray in Messiah's name.